Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue working our way through God's Word. Now on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is beginning a new series about the church. And speaking of churches, if you're looking for a place to worship, a place to connect with other believers and to serve together, we'd love to have you at Calvary. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Our Sunday school time is at 9.30 and our worship begins at 10.30 on Sunday mornings. Now, if you're looking for more information, you can find that at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Now, we're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram, on Facebook, or even on Twitter. And we'd love to connect you through any of those opportunities. Again, Pastor Kirk is talking about the church and will be for the next several weeks. Today's message is entitled, The Church, The People of God, taken from 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's listen together. 1 Peter chapter 2, page number 1014. What is the church? What is a church? Those are two different things, by the way. The church, a church. When did the church start? Who are the members of the church? Why does the church exist? Is the church at all relevant anymore? Never in the history of the Western world has the Lord's church been so disregarded as she is today. The church has been pushed, not always very gently, to the very periphery of society and culture. In many places in Europe, by the way, that used to be the Bible Belt, right? It's where the Bible came to us from. It's where the gospel came to America from. Many places in Europe, the church is almost non-existent, just a relic of the past. And in America, the church is viewed as not essential at the best and as archaic, out of touch, and destructive at the worst. For so many, the church is certainly not needed for life, for spirituality, for a relationship with God. People believe you can have all those things if you want them, totally apart from the church. And the reality of that can be clearly seen in the lack of devotion to the church, even on the part of those, many of those, who claim to be followers of Christ and members of the Lord's church. Today, church attendance has become so optional that for many people in many places, twice per month, a twice per month attender who seldom gives financially and never serves in any capacity is still viewed as faithful because they show up a couple of times a month. 
We've never seen darker days in regards to the Lord's church in our lifetimes here in America. And the days are growing darker still. So I think it's time to reevaluate what the church is, who are the true members of the Lord's church, where is her place and significance in the world today. So for the next few weeks, we'll be talking about various aspects of that. I hope that does not turn you off. I hope that does not bore you at the very thought of that. I hope and pray that the things we'll talk about will be practical enough that they will help you in some very uh, specific ways. But we need to begin today by identifying who and what is the church. Now the message today I've entitled the church, the people of God. And our text is 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. The publishers of the English Standard Version have entitled this section of Scripture, A Living Stone and a Holy People. I like that. Let's hear what the Apostle Peter had to say as he was inspired of the Lord. Follow along with me if you would. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, the reason he said that was in chapter 1, he gave us an incredible picture and understanding of what it means to be saved by God's grace, of what God has done for us, how he has called us to a living hope and an inheritance laid up for us in heaven that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, and that God will keep us all the way to the very end. So he picks up in chapter 2 by saying, put away all malice, put away all deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long, this is a command, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, he is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, or it says in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord, and it is a tremendous word from God to us. Now, before I get to what I want to share with you and and leave with you today, I want you to just kind of walk back through a couple of those verses with me. I want you to notice, first of all, how Peter speaks of Christ in these verses. Notice he said in verse 4, he is a living stone. He says a little bit later that we are like living stones because we are small Christ, we are little Christ, we are Christians, we are followers of him, but he is the living stone. Verse 6 said he is a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Verse 7 said he is a rejected stone. And verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus makes a difference in the world. Everybody lines up on one side or the other of what do you think of Jesus Christ? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Is he for you a living stone, a cornerstone that gives your life alignment and levels your life? Is that what he is? Or is he instead a rejected stone, a stone that you stumble over, a rock that offends you? Everybody has to make that decision. Then notice how Peter speaks of Christ's followers. And he gives four names to them in verse 9. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. Verse 10 says, we are God's people. Verse 11 says, we are sojourners and exiles. Look down through that list. Does that not look just a bit Old Testament to you? It should. Because all of those names we are given here are found in the Old Testament as descriptions of God's people. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We're God's people. We are sojourners and pilgrims in in this world, exiles in this world. Now, these words are used by Peter because the church of the New Testament, now listen to me, the church of the New Testament is the continuation of the church in the Old Testament. Yes, I said it. The church in the Old Testament. Friends, I'm going to ask you to do what Peter asked his readers to do back in chapter 1, about verse 13. In the ESV, it says, prepare 
your minds for action. Literally, gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready because you're going to be challenged, many of you, by some things that I'm going to say today. Now, for some of you, it'll be just no big deal. I mean, it is a big deal, but it won't be a challenge to your accepting the truth of it. But for those of you who were raised like me, for those of you that perhaps have Baptist and even specifically a missionary Baptist background, that's where my roots are, there once was a time in our association of churches that our doctrinal statement, our statement of faith as a group of churches stated that the only true church is a scriptural missionary Baptist church. Those were the exact words taken from our doctrinal statement. Thankfully, we have moved on from that kind of limited that kind of erroneous perspective. You see, there's a key truth that we need to understand, and it is this. I believe it'll be on the screen. The Bible mentions the word church 114 times, all in the New Testament. It refers both to specific congregations such as Corinth, Antioch, Philippi, Calvary, it refers to specific congregations as well as all who are truly born again in Christ. Sometimes we distinguish the two with the words local and the words universal. Most of the time in the New Testament, when the Bible uses the word church, it is speaking about a specific congregation in a specific locale. But there are times that the word church is spoken not about one specific congregation, but about God's people as a whole. For instance, the words of Jesus. Upon this rock, I will build my church. He's not speaking of just one congregation in one place. But instead, he is speaking of his people wherever they are. I will build my church. Several times the Apostle Paul refers to the church, which is the body of Christ. And he's not talking about one body of Christ, a body of Christ, although that's what we are, a visible expression of the people of God. But we're a part of something much larger, and that is the people of God in the world. Now, if you're still with me, I want you to focus in because I want to give you a little bit of Hebrew-Greek lesson here. Can I do that? And I'll try not to bore you with it. Uh, I know you probably don't care a thing in the world about Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. Most people don't care much even about English anymore. But, but it's important to understand uh, something here. In the New Testament, the Greek word that is translated church, those 114 times, is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. 
It is a word that literally means a congregation, an assembly, a group of people. And know this about the Greek. It was not a religious term in any way because it was used in the Greek, not only in the Bible, but also in other uh, ancient writings to describe an assembly such as a community of people or a group of leaders in a city, city leaders. It just meant a group or an assembly. And so this is the word that was chosen to be used for the Lord's church because it was seen as groups or assemblies of people, ecclesia. Now, it's also interesting that there's a word in the Old Testament in the Hebrew for the very same thing, for a community or a congregation or an assembly of people. In the Hebrew, it is the word kahal. Now, here's what's very interesting. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, we know it as the Septuagint. When the Septuagint came to be, the Old Testament in Greek, how did they translate the word kahal in the Old Testament for the many, many, many times it is used? They translated it with the word ekklesia. Ekklesia, the same as the New Testament. So all through the Bible, Old Testament and New, if you were to read it in the Greek language, it would refer to church, 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 church. It's the same word. Now, sometimes the translators translated it community or assembly, but it's the very same word. So how does this impact our understanding of the church. If you go back to our text, go back to Peter's description of Christ's followers, we find that he says, you are a chosen race, you are a holy nation, you are a royal priesthood, you are a people for his own possession, you are sojourners and exiles. Each of those are describing our function, the way we live, how we uh, complete uh, being the people of God. But it's summed up in the words, verse 10, God's people. You are God's people. You are God's people. that separates you from those who are not God's people. And if you look down through history, and if you were to see today somehow with an eternal perspective, you and I stand in a long line of people of faith, people chosen and called out by God to be his people in this world. And what it meant and how it looked to live out being the people of God looks different in different eras of history. I'll share that with you as the body of a message today. It'll just be three things and we'll be on our way. But understand it is a long line of faithful people who are being drawn towards, ever towards, that land that they cannot see except by faith. And that is our heavenly home, our heavenly inheritance. 
that inheritance that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is imperishable. So we are God's people, God's people in the world. If you trace the people of God through the Bible and through history, what do you see? You see them, I think, in basically three different perspectives. First of all, God's people, when you see them first enter the pages of Scripture, you see them as a family. You see the church expressed as a family. You have on the front of your worship guide a quote from the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563 that says this, I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community, an ecclesia, a church, chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, of this ecclesia, I am and always will be a living member. Beloved, you need to commit that paragraph to memory because it's a declaration of who you are as God's people. Well, how did that first enter the pages of Scripture? Well, of course, it entered the pages of Scripture in the Garden of Eden with the first created man and woman, Adam and Eve. When God created Adam and Eve, do you know what he was doing? He wasn't just initiating a, a human race for his entertainment. When God created Adam and Eve, he created a worshiping community. A community of two, an ecclesia of two to worship him. We were born, if you remember back a couple of weeks ago to our message from Psalm 139, there is a purpose for which God creates people. And that purpose is to worship him, to exalt him, to glorify him forever. That's the reason for our existence. And that's the reason for Adam and Eve. And it's the reason for the church today. But you remember that it didn't all go so well with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They chose in chapter 2 to disobey and rebel against God. And they experienced what we refer to as the fall of man. And it shattered their fellowship with one another. It shattered their fellowship with God. And that division between Adam and Eve that reflects itself even in the contentiousness between people today, even in marriage, the struggles in marriages today, that div division that was, uh, began with Adam and Eve deepened even further in the next generation when one of their sons, Cain, rose up and killed his brother Abel. And that began a trajectory of sin and rebellion away from God. And if you go all the way down to Genesis chapter 11, you'll find that that lineage of Cain, that descendants of Cain, they became a counterfeit worshiping community at a place called Babel, creating a God of their own making. 
building a tower to heaven saying we can work our way up to where God is. That is a counterfeit worshiping community. But God continued his plan through a son that was given whose name was Seth. You remember Seth? And remember through his descendants, through the line of Seth, there were men like Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, and others. Finally, we get down to a man by the name of Abram, an idolatrous, sun-worshiping man living in Ur. But God spoke to him, and God called him out of his idolatry, and God called him out of his worship of the sun, and showed him who the true one and only God was, and God promised him of his seed that he would make a great nation of people, that, their, that their, uh, his descendants would be like the sands of the sea. Just got back from the beach last week. I'm still getting sand out in between my toes. Everything we open up, chairs in the garage and everything else, sand just falls out. And God told Abram, he said, you will be called Abraham and your descendants will be that numerous. So this family was promised that they would be expanded. And expanded they were. We find that these people down from Adam on through Seth's lineage, they embraced the promise of a Messiah. By the way, do you remember when the very first gospel was preached and where it was? It was in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. God promised that there would be a Savior who would come and undo the curse of the serpent. That the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. That was a promise of a Messiah. The gospel always forms the people of God. The people of God don't create the gospel. The gospel forms and creates us. So what began, this worshiping community, began as a family with a man and a woman who had sons, who had sons, and they kept producing. They became a family numbering about 70 or so later on in the book of Genesis. They were the family of Abraham's grandson, Jacob. If you remember his 12 sons and you remember the story about how they went down to Egypt because of the famine. And down there, they prospered. And over about 400 years, they lingered a long time in Egypt. And this family numbered now some three million probably people. It was a huge family. And you know, we'll have to short, short circuit the, the message or the... Uh, the uh, story here, but you know how that God raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses and how they miraculously were delivered out of Egyptian bondage and they went into a wilderness and they came to a mountain called Sinai. And there, this family, this huge family, became a nation of people. And this is the second expression of the ecclesia in the Old Testament. What was a family now becomes 
a nation of people. God is still keeping his plan. He is raising up a worshiping community who would be his people in this world, his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is raising them up. But no sooner had had they committed themselves to this covenant relationship with the Lord that they turned around and abandoned him. Even at Mount Sinai, when Moses was at the top of the mountain receiving commandments that would guide these people, his ecclesia in the world, they were at the bottom of the mountain creating and making an idol to follow. Just as Adam and Eve had fallen, these people were expressing the same rebellion and self-will desire to do their will. So as they get to the promised land and they experience their ups and downs through the wilderness, their victories, their defeats, they live 400 years under judges. They kept wandering away from God. Finally, they called out for a king. God gave them kings, but still their propensity to fall away and not be that worshiping community continued. So God mercifully sent them prophets. Prophets. Men with a message from God telling them that they were corrupt and rebellious children. Telling them, as Hosea said, they are like an adulterous wife that's unfaithful to her husband. Someone has said Israel and Judah, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes, they were like two twisted sisters from the same family always idolatrous. Finally, God abandoned his chosen dwelling place in Jerusalem. He allowed his people to be overrun by Babylon. They were carried away into captivity. It seems like the story is over. It seems like the whole ideal of God raising up a faithful, worshiping family is finally lost. But God's promises made at Sinai could not be forgotten. They had to be fulfilled. God had attached his name to these people, this ecclesia that was so unfaithful to him. They were so unresponsive. But he decided and he, we find, we know it was his plan from the beginning because he knew what they were going to do. God promises under Jeremiah a new covenant where Israel was supposed to be his servant, he said, I'm going to send to you a divine servant, a better servant. And so God sends to Israel and what became the Lord's servant, a light for the Gentiles, bringing healing to the nations. We know it was the promise of Christ. And with Christ, we usher in and begin to usher in the third expression of his ecclesia in the world. What was a family that became a nation now is known as the body of Christ in this world. It's what you and I are a part of. You see, the servant Israel took flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about the fact that from the very moment of his birth, now follow me on this, Jesus from the very moment of his birth, 
Jesus reenacted the history of Israel, and yet he did it perfectly instead of failing. As a family, Israel went down to Egypt, right? And the Bible says God called Israel out of Egypt. Do you remember that shortly after his birth, his mother and his father took him to Egypt because Herod was seeking to take his life. So Jesus spends the first couple of years of his life down in Egypt. And the Bible prophesies that he would be called out of Egypt. And he was just like Israel was. When Israel was called out of Egypt, God miraculously opened the Red Sea. And they walked into a wilderness, were delivered from their enemies by what was a picture of baptism surrounded by water. And Jesus began his ministry with baptism by John the Baptist. And immediately after he was baptized, he was led into the wilderness, just like Israel had gone into the wilderness. For 40 years, he went for 40 days. And he was faced with all the temptations Israel was faced with. Yet he didn't fail. He overcame all of those temptations. Jesus was showing what it meant to be the true Israel, the true worshiping congregation, the true people of God, where the family had failed, where the holy nation of Israel had failed. Jesus was now fulfilling completely and perfectly what it meant to be the people of God in the world. He goes back home to Bethlehem, excuse me, to Nazareth. And there when the scroll was given to him, he reads from the Old Testament scripture a prophecy of the Messiah, and he says, Today, these words are being fulfilled in your ears. They tried to kill him, by the way, that day. His own hometown tried to kill him tried to stone him, tried to throw him off the brow of the hill because that was blasphemy. But Jesus was fulfillment of the new covenant that Jeremiah anticipated. Jesus fulfilled God's original design for human holiness. Hear this quote, it'll be on the screen. Since Jesus Christ is himself the new Israel, all those united to him by faith are also incorporated into the Israel of God. If you want to read where that expression is found, it's Galatians 6, 16. The Israel of God. It's talking about you and me. It's talking about the body of Christ. It's talking about the church in its present day expression. That first assembly, that first congregation of worshipers was Adam and Eve and their descendants, their family. It became an incorporated nation of people, Israel. But all this, when it failed, Jesus steps on to the scene of history and fulfills 
all of God's plan. In Christ, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. The Old Testament prophesied of the vine. It was the expression and the image for Israel. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Christ is the living stone, a cornerstone, and we become living stones. Being part of this new covenant, Israel, is not a matter of who your parents were, even if you are a descendant of Abraham, but rather it is sharing in Abraham's faith and repentance. Have you done that? Have you truly done that? Not just walking an aisle, not just being baptized, not just praying some form prayer, but have you surrendered your life in repentance and faith to Jesus? Have you become a part of the Israel of God, the true church in the world? Today we see the church at large, the church, expressed in local congregations like Calvary, like others who are meeting right now all over northwest Arkansas. In a very practical way, we see the people of God living out their life in Christ in faith communities. Faith communities like ours. An assembly of Christ followers seeking to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission of Jesus Christ. Seeking to be that worshiping community that God intended His people, His church to be from the very beginning. Let me leave you with a key truth a quote, and a closing statement. The key truth is this. I already said it earlier. The church did not create the gospel. The gospel creates the church. There are people all over that are gathered and call themselves churches. But if it's not, if they are not preaching the true gospel, they're not truly a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel created the church. Hear this quote by Michael Horton. The church is created by the gospel. When was the gospel first announced? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When after the fall, God promised a Messiah who would crush the serpent's head. And when we read in Genesis 4, 26, regarding Seth's descendants, Seth, who replaced Abel, it says that then people began to call on the name of the Lord. From that time on, the church grew into a large people. As God promised Abraham, he would be the father of many. And then that people became a nation at Mount Sinai. Violating the terms of that covenant, 
that they swore before God, God promised a new covenant of pure promise in Jesus Christ through the prophets. The Apostle Paul tells us salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And God has always had his church in both testaments. In 1 Peter 2.9, the church, which is made up of Gentiles as well as Jews, is called God's chosen nation, a royal priesthood. These are titles that were attributed to Israel in the Old Testament. In Revelation 5.9, Christ purchased with his blood people from every tribe and tongue and people, a people, uh, a nation to be a kingdom of priests for our God. So throughout the New Testament, the titles applied to Israel are now applied to the church today, to you. In summary, God has formed his covenant community, his church, in different ways through redemptive history, by his covenants and his laws. But it's all intended to point us to Christ and his ideal, his supreme and his perfect kingdom. What started with Adam and Eve, becoming a family, becoming a nation, becoming the church as we know it today, is all intended to point people to the perfect community, which will be the community of heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we today are a part of something you started at the beginning of the world. Help us to see our connection. That your plan didn't change. Only the ways in which you carried out that plan. That we are in a long line of faithful men and women. May we be faithful in our time. Faithful to our calling. May we be a worshiping community that reflects the glories of heaven. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.